the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside my guest co-host today, Steve Koble. my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, Steve is the pastor of teaching, discipleship, and spiritual formation at Renewal Church of Chicago. You can learn more about their church at RenewalChicago.com. People might be listening right now, Steve, in the city going, oh, where is Renewal of Chicago? Help people know where you guys land in the city. Yeah, so we are not far from the United Center, uh, just south of uh, Rush Hospital at 1950 West 13th Street. Awesome. And uh, what is the Renewal Church of Chicago look like right now in terms of COVID, in terms of what you're doing? Uh, where are you guys at right now? Yeah, so we, we're doing a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. service. And, uh, you know, we were able to pivot because we have some younger folks that are a part of our community to pivot online. And uh, now we've we've uh, we've gone back to in person. We do 11 a.m. live stream of our worship gathering. And so I think like a lot of churches, we're we're just getting back into the rhythm of things. Um, And yet, man, it feels it feels really good. Uh, A lot of feels like a a lot of momentum. And um, I think, you know, in in particular at, at our church, because we do have two pastors that are probably high enough capacity to lead their, their own churches, but we're doing it together. Mm. Um, it just, it helps out a lot in the midst of, I think the, the pandemic to help feel like we're, uh, we got wind in ourselves and we're, we're moving. That's awesome. And as we said, uh, the last couple of times, Steve has uh, co-hosted with me. Uh, he is a new dad, three months old. You're getting full night sleep now, right? Three months old. That kid should be like just dealing with it on the moan, right? I'm playing, man. I feel like I'm in the, the I'm like, Holy Spirit, we got to get, uh, I feel like we got to turn a corner here. Because <laughs> uh, listen, man, I'm supposed to go on my anniversary trip that I had to postpone December 14th. And so my, my, uh, his grandparents are supposed to watch him. And and uh, people are acting like they don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I'm telling them he's going to turn a corner here or <laughs> all the way through the night. I feel it in my bones. Um, but me right now, not yet. Not yet. I do like that. That it is. It rises to the level of Holy Spirit intervention for a kid <laughs> to sleep through, yeah. <laughs> sleep through the night. That is absolutely true. Well, Steve, you've been on many times now. Uh, back in the day, you were on as a guest, I believe, with Ian and I. Yeah. Uh, and now you've been get. You're one of our regular guest co-hosts, which I, I'm thrilled about. But I realized I don't really know your story, and so I thought it would be a fun way to start the day here to just hear your story, particularly. Uh, how did you end up in the spot where you became a pastor? Like walk us through that. Yesterday you mentioned kind of in passing that uh, you grew up in the Catholic church until you're like 18 or 19. Tell us a, a little bit of your story and how that impacts where you're at now. Yeah, Brian. Uh, so I grew up in going to Catholic elementary school. Uh, my my mother and my, my, I say my maternal grandmother was very devout Catholic lady and my grandfather and my mom, not so much, but um, but I, that was where I was introduced to, uh, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, you know, all of those, 
kind of introductory things into the the Christian faith, the gospels, things like that. And then we kind of, we were nominal and my father passed away. uh, My grandmother passed away. So it was really hard in our family. And I think that my mom kind of felt like God had dealt her a bad card. And I think 18, 19 years old, I was kind of reintroduced to some things. I went to a non-Catholic church a couple of times. And then my friend Derek, who I pastor with now, he was raised in Catholic youth organization sports. And he was like, man, you remember all that, that stuff about Jesus on the cross that we learned about in elementary school? And I was like, yeah, he was like, what if, what if those things impacted like reality? Like what if it impacted every part of your life? And at the time I was just interested. I was kind of asking questions about what, what's the purpose of life? Why am I here? All of those kind of things. And so then he invited me to uh, an impact conference, which is really the African American arm of Campus Crusade for Christ at the time. Mm, okay. And uh, was just, you know, they just shared the, shared the gospel with me. And, um, and I, I professed my faith in Christ and kind of had a Neo pulled out of the matrix type experience. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, the trajectory of my life was just different. It was changed. I had spent so much time focused on sports and athletics. Um, I didn't have an interest in school at all. And for the first time I was just like, man, I'd really like to learn the Bible and, and kind of, I, I really Maybe if if I I learned the Bible, I would know what to do with my life and stuff like that. And uh, so a mentor of mine who was on staff with crew was like, why don't you finish school at Bible college? Because I had gone to junior college to play baseball, got my associate's degree there and and then went to Bible college, not 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 planning on vocational ministry. Um, But I think I preached like my first sermon in Bible college and they were like, man, like you should probably keep trying that. Hmm. And uh, I really flourished academically and uh, kind of in the process of that really sensed a, a call uh, from God to uh, prepare for vocational ministry and started the seminary route and all of those different things. And then uh, landed at Fellowship Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee with uh, Crawford Loritz's son, Brian. And he kind of just showed me the ropes of what it means to be uh, a pastor and um and all the different ins and outs of pastoral ministry. And then I, I moved up here to Chicago to, to do PhD studies at Trinity Divinity School up in Deerfield and realized very early on that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life reading and writing. <laughs> yes. not my jam. I realized when my, you know, one of my colleagues was reading, uh, reading uh, German New Testament that I was like, oh, so this is church history. <laughs> like you're, you're reading Martin Luther in the original in the original language. Yes, yes. <laughs> and oh, I was like, I, just, I can't do anything like that. Um, and so, um, kind of in the process of that, got back into local church ministry, preaching on Sundays, and landed over at Park Community Church, um, kind of city center Chicago. Yeah, been there for about six years, and that same childhood friend, man, that shared his faith with me, uh, had planted a church here in 2013 and was like, man, I need your help. Why don't you come over and let's do this together? And so, uh, we've been doing that, uh, now for a little over a year, man. That's an awesome story. That's got, I wanted to ask you about that because I didn't realize, uh, Derek Puckett, who you always say you're doing church with now, uh, was instrumental in basically you coming to coming to faith. What's it? It's gotta be really awesome to be doing church leadership together now all these years later. 
It's a lot of fun, man. It's a lot of like when you know somebody like Derek and I met each other riding bicycles, you know, when we were 12. <laughs> yes. Um, so like, it's just like, you know, somebody so well, like you, you know how they're going to react to something, you know, uh, what they're going to say. And I, and I think, you know, my mother passed away a couple of years ago now, almost exactly two years ago. And after my mom passed away, I, I think, and, and Derek knowing my mom since he was 12 years old, I, I think it just was like, Hey, like, no, like we can't let ego get in, in front of us on this. We got to just, just want the best for one another, no matter mm-hmm. what. And uh, I think that that's kind of the approach that we've, we've had to things. And it's, it's a lot of fun. He's good at a lot of stuff that I'm not good at. Um, and we're both good at certain things. So, you know, it never feels like there's a, there's a fall off on one end or the other. Right. And um, we get one another so deeply that uh, you just feel like you're, you're always in a flow. That's good, man. Well, it's good to hear your story. I appreciate you sharing it. I think it's always encouraging. I know it always encourages me to hear other people's stories of God's faithfulness and God's pursuit and now how you end up where you are today. And I know for me, it's always fun to look back at my own life and go, wow, look at that. Look at point A and point B and point C. Uh, it's really good. Well, I'm glad to have Steve with me today. Uh, we're going to switch gears coming up next. Uh, abortion has been back in the news. The Supreme Court is going to hear some arguments coming up. Um, President Biden, it came up when he went and saw the Pope the other day. Uh, Steve and I are going to talk about, again, the issue of abortion coming up next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside my guest co-host today, Steve Coble. my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. One of the issues that we often talk about on the show and in churches and we see in the news is the issue of abortion. And um, the, the issue of abortion as kind of front and center again this week, a couple different reasons. One, the Supreme Court just on Monday uh, it took up two challenges to the nation's most restrictive abortion law, that Texas measure uh, that we've been reading about over the last couple of months, where Texas, the, the new law that they put in place a couple of months ago, has uh, all but stopped abortions in the state. If you look at the graph of abortions in the state, it is just uh, gone precipitously down since the pass of that law. And so the Supreme Court is going to hear some stuff. But then there's an even bigger one on December the 1st, where Mississippi will urge the Supreme Court to actually overrule Roe versus Wade and declare that there is no constitutional argument for it. Uh, with that also, President Biden went and had time with Pope Francis at the Vatican the other day. And President Biden's press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, was asked if President Biden agrees with Pope Francis that abortion is murder, uh, and she wouldn't answer that. She basically said, you know where President Biden stands on this. Uh, and President Biden, he talked about the impression that the Pope left on him, that he is everything I learned about Catholicism. And the Pope said keeps taking communion, uh, but that they didn't talk about abortion, that it didn't come up. And which is odd because President Biden is very pro-choice and Pope Francis has very much said in the past that that is not OK. Uh, and so, Steve, with all of that, I think it's incumbent on us to, again, have the conversation about abortion, which 
uh, I have said in the past, for me at least, is a hill to die on. It's not the only hill to die on, but it's a hill for the church to die on. Let me put you on the spot and say, just kind of how do you process the abortion debate? How important of a conversation should this be uh, within the church and within uh, just kind of uh, with Christians right now in our culture? Man, it, it is a jumbled, uh, a jumbled. Con- Obviously, I have my my own personal convictions uh, against it in general. Uh, mm-hmm. Then at the same time, I feel like there's a larger conversation that I I I feel like I I need and want to as a, as a man to listen to uh, women in terms of just their perspective on not just abortion, but just like how they felt like they've been told what to do with their bodies over the course of uh, human history, really, uh, by men. And so I, I just want I want to make sure that that part of my um, sort of my own spiritual discipleship is that that I'm a listener um, who hears people out um, and not even to say that somebody would say, well, this is the reason why I should have abortion. But maybe that's the reason why you feel so strongly about it. Um, you know, I listen to Sky Jathani, uh, old Christianity Today guy who's out at, yeah. uh, out in the suburb. Um, and he says before Roe versus Wade that the numbers for uh, abortion actually were higher um, in the 1970s. And so I think that a person has to ask themselves the question, is the is the biggest, most important thing that it's illegal and that funding is not going towards these things? Or is it that the numbers of abortions are going down? Um, and then I think in, in, a, in a broader sense, like, what does it mean to be pro-life? Um, what does it mean for me as, as a person to be to be pro-life? I think in the broader conversation, you know, when when people talk about um, I don't want to get vaccinated because it's uh, my rights. You're, you're trying to override my rights um, when we know that vaccination uh, vaccination can actually help keep people from dying uh, or passing on a, a deadly, uh, uh, a deadly disease, uh, then like, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of look at it as like, man, if you say like, I don't want a mandate for a vaccine, but I do want a mandate for abortion. I mean, you're kind of talking out of two sides uh, of your mouth in, in some ways. And, and not to say that they're completely the same. I'm just saying like, if we're going to be pro-life, let's be pro-life. Yeah, let's go, let's jump off there because uh, a lot of people will say I'm pro. You know, we've got these phrases, right? I'm pro life from womb to the tomb. Like we want to be across the board pro life. But help unpack that because I think you bring up something really interesting uh, that that we can and should be just advocating for the least of these, right? The uh, the unborn baby that we we need to be advocating uh, on their behalf. But for you, what you're saying there is pro life has to be a bigger category. It's got to encompass more. Uh, there might be people listening right now, Steve, who are like, I thought pro-life was just an abortion conversation. Like, that's it. How, unpack that a little bit more, what you mean by like, I want to have the pro-life, I want to be pro-life across the board. Yeah. So I, I think for a lot of African-American people in general, like they look at um, maybe bringing, you know, when it, when it comes to like the the circumstances and the the even the wealth gap that exists in the African American community compared to other communities, and then the um, the sort of broad uh, criminalization of something like marijuana, 
And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might listen to, on a conservative uh, radio show and just say they'll say, you know, black people just need to re- regain their fa- the family. Right. And they need to get back the family. And then you look over the course of the past 30, 40 years and man, crack cocaine w- was criminalized what much worse than regular cocaine. And poor black people were doing crack cocaine mm-hmm. and marijuana charges and now a lot of people are about to make a lot of money off of marijuana when there's no economy in a sector of the city because they've been isolated and so uh, i think it's all about like the flourishing of everybody right if i'm going to be pro-life i want to i want to be a person who's about the flourishing of of people who are marginalized and the reality in our society that there have been people who uh have been either criminalized or or uh punished because of uh their background and and i think that that's that's an important thing to to have a as a part of the conversation of being pro-life in general and so when you look at lots of babies being born uh maybe out of out of wedlock or or you know you got this cycle of uh school to prison pipeline kind of thing that's going on i think that a lot of people who aren't uh white conservative people, they look at it and, and they say like, ah, that's kind of hypocrisy. You're not really pro-life. Um, not in the sense of what the way Jesus was, not in the sense of the way the Bible is. You're pro-life just when it comes to, so, so you don't want to, uh, you don't want to pay higher taxes to help support that single mom after she has the baby instead of having an abortion. You, you just want to make sure that she has the baby. And so I, I think that for some people, and, and especially, you know, when it comes to people that we're trying to reach on the other side of the aisle who are not our enemies, but don't believe what we believe um, when it comes to this issue, I, I think that in order to reach them, that we've got to at least listen to some of those uh, some of those things to, to consider how we're viewing people as human beings. Yeah. Um, not to say that that changes our perspective on what uh, we view about abortion. Um, but just to make sure that we are seeing the whole picture and the whole picture of people made in the image of God, um, that we value all life. Yeah, that's man. That's a challenge that that is that is uh, I appreciate you opening up there and saying, ultimately, this is an issue of the image of God. Like, right. We believe that unborn babies are created in the image of God. So we want them. Uh, we want to save them. We want to protect them. But we believe all people are created in the image of God. And then uh, that needs to be our lens through which we're treating everybody, uh, the legislation we back and the programs that we're going to be a part of. Uh, that that needs to be our driver, uh, as we said earlier, to be pro-life from womb to tomb. I appreciate you bringing up like pro-life is a bigger deal. Uh, abortion's a huge part of it. Uh, but there is also more to it that we don't always like to wrestle with. So uh, good word there, man, a really good word. And we'll see what the Supreme Court does uh, in the coming days and months and years. Well, coming up next, uh, I want to talk to Steve a little bit more about his church, particularly what's it mean to lead a multi-ethnic church? How is that difficult? Why is that important? We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. One of the interesting things about your church, one of the missions, one of the values of your church 
uh, is to be a multi-ethnic church. And I want to just talk to you about that. I want to unpack it. Uh, what does it mean to have that as part of your mission, as part of your values that we want to be a multi-ethnic church? Help people understand that. Yeah, I, I think that if it's if it's in the mission, if it's part of the value system of the church, then you can't you can't get away from it. Right. You can't it can't take a backseat to something else. Um, it, it is constantly in front of you. It's constantly uh, something that you're in pursuit of. And so it just kind of forces your hand in, in that way. And so uh, that's just a part of our, our mission and vision and kind of, you know, it was really organic for Pastor Derek and myself because we grew up in kind of diverse environment. We both became Christians, uh, you know, post uh, like we didn't we didn't grow up in homes that were like super focused on uh, church. And uh, then we became Christians and we're like. So why do I have to go to one or the other? Why do I have to go to black church? Why do I have to go to white church? Mm. Like it, it just seems so foreign to the way that uh, the scriptures presented uh, the church in the New Testament. And, you know, obviously you could go down the road of of why that happened in segregation in the history of America and slavery, all of those different things. Um, but we wanted to write a new narrative and felt like especially in this climate, in terms of our society and culture, like we actually have the answer, like, mm. like the gospel is the answer uh, to the racial tension and racial divide that we have in America. And so we want to embody that. We want to, uh, we want to show that off. And, you know, even as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray um, the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that, in a worship gathering and in community with one another, what's reflected in heaven and what we will experience together when there's a new heavens and a new earth, um, every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping the lamb together. Uh, and we want to get started on that here. Uh, so most people listening are probably thinking, well, shouldn't every church want to be that? Like you welcome everybody, uh, you know, we're unified under the gospel, but, uh, it actually requires a great amount of intentionality. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, so help people understand uh, what are the intentional things you guys do to try to build this type of church? And then later we'll talk about the struggles of it, like what makes it difficult. But but what are the intentional steps that you, your other pastor, your elders have kind of put in place to uh, try to bring about a church that is multi-ethnic? Yeah, so we I think one of the things we had a conversation at staff meeting recently um, you know, some churches will have like a target person that they have in mind as like, this is our niche. This is the type of person that we want to reach. And I think that we've collectively said, yeah, we don't have a person we want to reach. We want to reach everybody. Mm. And when Paul said in first Corinthians nine, uh, I became all things to all people uh, that by any means uh, some might be saved. That's kind of the posture and the attitude that we want to take. Uh, when it comes to reaching people for Jesus. And so yeah. we're, we're looking for where those cultures intersect. We're looking for where um, things can ha have like a, a mutual appreciation. So in a practical way, you know, when it comes to our worship, we're very intentional about singing uh, contemporary Christian music along with gospel music. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're going to sing hymns and we're going to, uh, we're going to sing Chris Tomlin. We're going to sing Fred Hammond and we're going to sing, 
you know, Hillsong. So uh, all of those different things are incorporated in the worship gathering. And we kind of taken the approach. I always, you know, when I was in uh, sort of more homogenous church settings, you know, people will say like, we don't like that song or we don't like that song or we don't sing that song well. Um, and I would say that like, like I'm not interested in somebody uh, liking a song. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really, you know, what, what's most important to me in the spiritual formation of a person is to be uncomfortable in worship at some point in time Yeah, where they realize like, oh, this is a song I love. And it speaks to my, it's like part of my heart language. But then we sang a song that, man, I really don't like. And and just because I'm not super into gospel music or I'm not super into CCM, um, but I know that my brother and my sister who looks different than me, is, is it's really speaking to their heart. And there's a part of us loving our neighbor as ourselves that's actually able to be experienced in a worship gathering together that way. Yeah. Yeah. What makes the multi-ethnic church difficult? Where have you, uh, you know, and your other pastors sat back and been like, why are we doing it this way? This is so difficult or it's going so slowly or whatever else. What are the difficult, uh, the difficulties for you guys as you try to um, have a church that looks multi-ethnic? There's many, um, <laughs> many. Yes. I, I think that you have to take the approach of, hey, we're we're going to sacrifice uh, like exponential growth in, in terms of like, um, you know, just the, the amount of, of people that we reach for the sake of uh, the quality of what we're doing hmm. and and doing it in such a way. Uh, on the front end that allows it to be a very hospitable place for all people. So it takes a lot of, of thought. It takes a lot of intentionality. Um, and one of the things that this is like really causes it to be difficult is that uh, people aren't super aware of their cultural biases. And especially uh, my Caucasian brothers and sisters, uh, you know, I hear them say all the time, uh, we'll say like, well, I just don't think that white people have a culture. Um and and so they look at maybe Hispanic or Latino culture and they're like, you got the music, you got the food and, uh, you know, this, that or the other. And I think that what uh, many of my white brothers and sisters don't realize is that uh, there's a culture that everybody else is kind of assimilating to. Yeah. And if they're assimilating to that culture or that cultural expression is seen as uh, kind of the, the dominant one or the most prominent one, then you're just not seeing your culture you you just assume it. And so um I think that that's one of the things especially for folks who are trying to become more multi-ethnic um it it can be harmful to bring other minority people under your leadership when you don't see your own culture um because it affects the decisions that you make. Like your philosophy of ministry is actually shaped in a tremendous way by your cultural biases and values. Uh, even though, you know, a lot of it is theological, a lot of it still has connections to to culture. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's something that that has to be done tactfully with and, and with a lot of thought. And sometimes that can't happen really fast. And so um, I kind of encourage people to really cultivate and develop deep heart level friendships with other pastors um, who are different than you um, before you try to uh, jump in the, the deep end of the pool. 
That's a good word. If you want to check out Steve's church, if like what he's saying resonates with you and you're like, yeah, I want to learn more uh, and, and even connect with them, go to RenewalChicago.com. That's RenewalChicago.com. Well, coming up next, if you've been around this show for a while, you know that I love a good list. And over at ChurchLeaders.com, they had this interesting list, five signs you're a miserable legalist. We're going to find out if you, Steve or I are a miserable legalist next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble. my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Over at churchleaders.com, they have this list, five signs you're a miserable Legalist, I love that phrase, miserable legalist. But before we dive in, uh, they give a definition for legalism. But Steve, let me put you on the spot. How would you define legalism? Ooh, good question. I I think that it's it's anything that sort of promotes uh, accomplishing or performance uh, as the basis for my acceptance. Mm. There you go. They, you you got right what they said in this article. They said legalism is any attempt to gain acceptance or forgiveness from God through your own works or merits. Uh, and that's why he said, talks about being a miserable legalist, because he says, let me tell you something about being a legalist Christian. It's a miserable sin. Uh, he talks about there being happy sins, but this is a miserable one. It makes mm. you and other people uh, miserable. So Steve, they give five signs that you might be struggling with legalism. Uh, I'm going to read each one and then you and I, let's just toss them back and forth about like, yeah, this is why I resonate with this. Oh, maybe do I agree with that one? Uh, so number one, he says this, a legalistic person is angry when other people get grace. Like that's starting hard right there. Steve. <laughs> Do you ever, uh, I almost said, do you ever feel this way? Don't you think that that's a bad sign in our lives when we start looking at the grace other people receive, the other good things in our life, and we get angry about it? That's a bad sign, right? That's a really bad sign. It, I mean, it makes you think of the older brother and the story of the prodigal son. Yes. Uh, yes, it does, because the older brother sits there going, I'm not happy that my brother is home. Instead, I'm really angry that he's getting a party thrown for him. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, if you start to look at the grace shown to other people and go, they don't deserve it, you've lost sight of grace in your own life going, I don't deserve it either. And instead, you're kind of like the older brother going, no, but I just do deserve it. So that's number one. Number two. A legalistic person constantly evaluates whether they're getting a fair shake. Interestingly, Steve, look how he starts this description. He says, after the prodigal son came home, his father threw him a massive party uh, and the older brother got angry uh, that he wasn't getting a fair shake. Steve, when we look, it's kind of the same as the first one. But when we see uh, what the forgiveness other people have been given, the grace other people, and we go, that's not fair. I deserve something. Isn't that a huge sign that we don't actually understand the grace we've been shown? Yeah, I, I think that our hearts are so prone towards uh, performance gains acceptance, right? Performance gains acceptance that we, we miss the fact that um, our our duty as people who have been saved by grace is to experience intimacy with God. But the, the, the thing that the legalist is doing is saying, 
I, God is in my debt because of the things that I, I am doing. And so in, in other words, God, God then becomes for you as the legalist, um, just a means to an end. And if God is a means to the, to an end, then you've built your life on something other than him. Matter of fact, you're, you're the focal point of, of your life. And that in, in and of itself is rebellion against God. That's good. Number three, a legalistic person constantly compares themselves to others. He talks about the Pharisees here. Luke chapter 18, uh, a Pharisee stood loud and proud before God and prayed the following. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, this idea that uh, you know you're moving into legalism, Steve. When I look at people next to me at church or I look at people in my life and I go, well, at least I'm better than them. At least uh, I've got God should be happier with me than with them. Talk about the uh, the danger of the comparison trap that we can fall into there. Man, I, you know, I, I think this is one of the most um, I think this is one of the things that like subtly we don't see about ourselves as much as we can see about the other two. And, um, and we spend a whole lot of time thinking about like how well we're doing at something. And then you look at somebody else and say, well, they're not doing quite as well as I am. And, you know, you might, you might, as a, as a person look at your life and maybe you were raised in a Christian home and, um, man, you went to Christian schools your, your whole life. And, and so therefore you never experience like that prodigal experience of yeah. riotous living. And yet another person, uh, you know, was raised in an abusive home where, um, you know, they, they weren't even, uh, they weren't given gifts for, for any reason. And, and, um, you know, they, they, they saw, uh, alcohol addiction and drug addiction and, um, experienced sexual abuse and different things. And then, and they're coming, uh, to faith in Christ mm. and their starting point is just a different starting point than yours is your, your, your sins are, are sins of the heart and you could just see their sin on the outside. Um, and, and so, I mean, people are starting from different places and it just creates a self-righteous attitude that misses grace altogether. And, and the reality is if we miss grace, then we miss Christianity. That's right. Um, we're no longer, um, we're no longer practicing Christianity. We're, we're practicing something else. And that's the danger of legalism. I mean, Jesus, who does he butt heads with? The Pharisees. Yeah. And the, he doesn't butt heads with the Pharisees because they're such terrible people, as in like sinners. They're just, they're, they're the legalists. And Jesus constantly calling them out saying, look at the death inside of you and your whitewashed tomb and all of these things. This is the danger. I know you just said you didn't grow up in the church. I did. This is the danger for those of us who have grown up in the church, gone to Christian school, kind of then into the world, you know, like who've just kind of had this transition. And number four gets at it too. The legalist person lacks joy. Like when we don't have an idea of where we came from and that, that apart from Jesus, we are lost. Like we start to fall into this legalist view that says, I've earned this. Then yeah. joy kind of goes away. Joy, we, we feel this joy. We know this joy uh, when we realize uh, what we have been saved from. And then number five is this, just for sake of time, says this. A legalist person feels like God is never happy with them. This is the flip side of it. Mm. 
If you're a legalist, you think that you've earned God's love, but then there's times you know that you haven't or that you haven't done enough. So, Steve, it's really interesting. A legalist lacks joy, but also feels like God is angry with them all the time. That's kind of uh, they kind of go hand in hand, don't you think? Yeah, it. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking about um, just you know so so many things, but uh, w- when you look at uh, standing in your own righteousness versus standing in Jesus's righteousness, Amen. then you're always going to be looking at yourself saying, have I done enough? Mm-hmm. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And I, I think that that's one of the things that, that we do. And it, it happens to us. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think that uh, even in Ephesians 6, when, when the Apostle Paul says to put on the whole armor of God, I think he's using six synonyms for put on the gospel, put on the gospel, put on the gospel, because we forget. Hmm. Um, and we have the tendency to start with grace and move on to works. Uh, and we have the tendency to stand in our reputation rather than Jesus's righteousness or to stand in our ability to do something rather than Jesus's righteousness. And it zaps the joy out of, out of our lives. So, so even when you look at Romans seven and, and the apostle Paul says, I got some good stuff in me and I got some bad stuff in, in me still, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Um, then he begins to articulate life in the spirit um, and the spirit's work in us uh, being that of uh, promoting the person and work of Jesus Christ and, and applying that person and work to our lives. He says there is therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, he, he says that we have uh, we have become sons and co-heirs with Christ, that the, the spirit is bearing witness to that fact that God is using all things together for our good. Um, and that nothing can separate us from his love. And if that is something that's been received by grace, man, that's the motivation for my holiness. Anything else is just going to be a joyless uh, list of rules to accomplish. No, preach, my friend. That is such good news right there. The gospel is not just the beginning. The gospel is the beginning, the middle, the end. And uh, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I should realize my need for the gospel, not the less I go, I don't really need it anymore. Uh, the more I realize uh, how much I need God's grace in my life. So uh, real good word there, Steve. Thanks for that. Well, coming up, uh, I want to play a clip from a preacher that I really love to listen to from going on 10 years ago, something that he said at a conference uh, that people are still talking about today. Going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside my guest co-host today, Steve Coble, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Steve, do you have uh, any preachers that are like, these are the people you listen to? Like when you're, uh, you got some time and maybe you're going to listen to a podcast while going for a walk or in the car or something. Are there any preachers that you're like, that's uh, one of my go-to ones? Yeah, I like uh, John Mark Comer. I think we talked a mm-hmm. little bit about about him from time to time uh, on the show. He wrote the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I Anytime Tim Keller has something to say on something, I want to hear what he has to say. Yes. I listen to my mentor, Brian Loritz, often. Um, and Gardner Taylor is kind of a historical uh, African-American preacher that I just I just want to hear what he has to say on stuff all the time. Oh, that's good. I, uh, uh, one of the ones that I listen to is Matt Chandler out of the village church down in Texas. Um, 
I just uh, Keller and others as well. But uh, Matt Chandler, I think, is just a compelling preacher. And I I resonate. I tend to resonate with what he says. I think a good preacher for us preachers to listen to, Steve, is is the ones where you listen and you're like, I wish I said it that way. <laughs> or, yeah. I, I wish that was it. So uh, I want to talk about I want to play a little clip from one of the more famous times that Matt Chandler spoke early on in his ministry. This is 2011. Chandler is speaking at a conference and they just posted this again at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it's a, it's very, it's a well-known one in which he talks about Jesus wanting the rose. And he talks about how all too often we as Christians uh, just kind of harbor in guilt and shame and just try to make people feel terrible so that maybe they'll embrace Jesus. But he wants to talk about uh, something more that uh, the, the gospel and, and a greater message we can have. Let's listen to what Chandler had to say here. I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church more often than not was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip. And you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. 
that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. Steve, I love that idea that... um you know, just kind of guilting people into the faith or, or people who are already in the faith, but maybe have wandered might be a better way to think of it. And just kind of being like, you're worthless and guilting them and then trying to backdoor the gospel in, uh, is probably an effective way, uh, in a numbers way to go about it. But in reality, I love that Chandler saying, no, no, Jesus is so much more beautiful than that. We need to talk about restoration, about cleansing, about being made into a new creation. Uh, what do you think about this concept of guilt and shame uh, versus kind of restoration and cleansing? Yeah, I, I think that, the, and I think it's a wonderful conversation, but I, I think that the idea of guilting and shaming people in into the gospel, um, number one, I, I think it it probably isn't into the gospel that you're guilting and shaming them into. Mm. Um, you're probably guilting and shaming them into religion um, and, and not into the gospel of grace. And I, I think that, you know, especially in particular to this uh, clip, like there's a lot of people who grew up in the purity culture who trust in uh, their virginity for their righteousness. Oh yes. And that goes back to this older brother thing where like, you can't even accept grace for yourself. And if you if you trust in your virginity for your righteousness or your sexual uh, purity, whatever you deem that to be, um, then you miss uh, grace. You've built your life on something other than than God. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's deeply problematic and disobedient to uh, to God. Um, That's rebellion against God. And 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 yet, like sometimes it gets presented as like this is what the gospel is and it's not. And, you know, I, I think about uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson wrote a book. He's a, um, a doctor who uh, understands kind of the brain and what, what happens in the brain when we experience shame. It's a book called The Soul of Shame. Mm. And uh, he talks about how he thinks that, you know, when we were created, uh, the Bible says that we were naked and we felt no shame. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, and so there's a freedom that comes with being in right relationship with God uh, in the sense of like, we're free from that self-condemnation. Um, and, uh, and in other words, we can be naked and feel no shame. Mm. And I think one of the things that the enemy uses for uh, to keep us from flourishing spiritually and experiencing God, even uh, as someone who gives us joy uh, is, is shame. Uh, and so we don't get to experience that Romans eight, no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we, we misunderstand the Holy Spirit's voice as the voice of self-condemnation. Uh, and we begin to hear shame tell a story about ourselves and we misappropriate that as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's job is to apply the person and work of Jesus, which in the application of the person and work of Jesus points us back to grace. Uh, mm. And that being the motivation, the the starting point for our true pursuit of holiness. Um, and so it's just a it's a pre- presentation of religion with Jesus's name tag on it. And Matt Chandler just hits it on uh, on the mark with this. He really does. It's a reminder that uh, I like how you you alluded to this. Like a lot of times we think I can only approach God when I make myself clean, mm-hmm. when I make myself pure, when I get to the. 
the whole point of the of, of the forgiveness of the gospel and the grace of the gospel is I go to Jesus with all of my mess, uh, with all of it. And it's it's through his life, death and resurrection. It's through his blood that I am made clean. Like when we reverse that, when I have to be clean to go to Jesus, now yeah. we're right back into the legalism we just talked about a half hour ago uh, versus. I got nothing like I'm dirty rags, right? Like I'm coming to you and bowing down before you. And the hard part is when we give that impression of you need to be clean before God could ever accept you, all we're doing is putting up an enormous hurdle that God doesn't put up to people coming to faith in him and coming to know him. Uh, I think this is a beautiful image, but also a painful image uh, from Chandler's talk here of, of kind of what these people uh, experience. So go ahead and listen to that. Uh, you can listen to it more fully uh, at the Gospel Coalition. Well, coming up next, we're going to end with a tweet by one of my favorite pastors, Scott Sauls, uh, about what does actual community look like? We're going to do that as we close out the show next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Steve, I'm really grateful for you, man. Two full days of shows here. Thanks for doing it. It's been a ton of fun. Man, we're just continuing a conversation. I love having that conversation with you, man. And we will do it more often. I'm grateful for you. Again, Steve is the pastor of teaching, discipleship, and spiritual formation at Renewal Church of Chicago. You can learn more about Steve at Renewal Chicago. Dot com. One of the things that we as pastors talk a lot about is community. What is community? What does connection? What does relationship look like? And we want our churches to be places of actual, authentic community. And so I want to talk a little bit about this topic of community as we close out today's show. Scott Sauls, we talked about him yesterday, but Scott is a pastor of Redeemer, no, Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Also the author of many books, and he's a great follow on Twitter and his blog, scottsalls.com. Scott Sauls wrote this, uh, Steve, and I would like your just kind of reaction to it. He says, actual community requires local embodied presence that includes things like scheduling, showing up, making eye contact, personal touch, sharing space, and eating together. Online community may be interesting and resourceful in some ways, but it is not actual community. What do you think of Scott's first, his description there? Before we get on the online community, what do you think just of his description there of what makes actual community? Yeah, I I like it. You know, when you think of Acts 2.42, I think that that embodies what what he's talking about. And I, I think that, you know, even for like my small group, we're going to meet in person tomorrow, um, but then we're going to meet on Zoom the, the next day. And it gives me the freedom to like be like, all right, I got to put the baby down, but I can actually be at small group. Um, or, or my wife and I can be at small group instead of just one of us. And so, you know, that's one thing that I think the pan- pandemic has, has given us the option for. Mm-hmm. But then at, at the same time, there's just the 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 reality that, Man, being connected to somebody requires proximity. Uh, it requires physical proximity. Uh, and that's the only way that we can actually build, uh, build deep heart level, uh, connection. Yeah. And what do you think happens? 
uh, when we don't have what he's calling here actual community that's local, embodied presence that requires some intentionality? What happens in our lives when we don't have those kind of relationships? I, I think we have the tendency to be really incredibly surface level. Uh, mm. I think that um, as much as we are connected to people, um, they're not connected to us uh, in terms of like we're communicating with people, but uh, it doesn't give us the space to really be uh, vulnerable, uh, to be known and, and loved and, and even experience the gospel acceptance versus rejection. Like God, accepts me not on the basis of the stuff that I've done, but on the basis of grace. And so uh, I think that that's, that's just something that, that has to happen uh, in proximity with one another. And yet at the same time, like I like to supplement FaceTime and Zoom calls just uh, for the sake of staying connected. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, uh, so let's talk about this online community. Cause he, he, he compares them. He says online community may be interesting and resourceful in some ways, but it's not actual community. Uh, I, I, so the negative of this is if you think your online communities are, can take the place of actual community, you're, 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 um, you're fooling yourself. It's just not going to do this. But Steve, let's take the positive angle. He says online community may be interesting and resourceful. What uh, what benefit do you see to online community, whether it be Zoom, whether it be Facebook and Twitter? What what are the benefits in your life of online relationships? I think it creates awesome opportunities for outreach. So even in a pandemic, right, it's hard to be evangelistic. But for instance, we have a daily devotional that we do at the church and somebody can just type uh, or text uh, 94,000 renewal devotion. Um, and get a devotional every morning and they could, you know, be somebody who would never don the doors of a church. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, that there's awesome opportunities for, uh, for evangelism through, uh, through these means. And I think for people who have a hard time, they might be introverted, you know, to just take the first step. I think it's a great, um, medium to, for people to take the first step. And yeah. um, an easier on ramp than uh, than it would be to come to an event or come to church service. Um, I think it really gives us the opportunity to do evangelism in a way that we uh, we weren't able to do it previously. And when the Romans wrote, even with, with the Apostle Paul, extended the gospel uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth, I think that the the internet gives us uh, gives us that opportunity to to evangelize the the surrounding area. That's a good word. I think for actual community, uh, I love that he says here, it includes things like scheduling, showing up, making eye contact, sharing space, eating together, uh, highlighting the kind of mundane intentionality it takes. Like I, you know, if I'm like, Oh, I want to have close community in my life, but I'm not willing to actually reach out to anybody, put it on my schedule, go out for a meal, whatever else it might be, then it's just never going to happen. And we do live in a world with virtual reality and online stuff where increasingly guys out there, uh, the opportunity is going to be there where you don't ever actually have to in, uh, be close to anybody in person. Yeah. And I think what Scott Sauls is saying here is that that's going to hurt our faith. That's going to hurt us as 
people. So wanted to end the show with that. Steve, man, I'm grateful for you. Thanks for doing this. We'll definitely do it again. Absolutely, Brian. My pleasure. Yep. And for those of you out there who have been listening, we are really grateful for you. Uh, Be with us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, uh, for Steve Coble, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.